And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king. The sky is the limit and space is the place. The podcast where we put the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Justin Sloan, introduce himself. So you can tell our listeners and viewers a little about who you are. Sure. Hi, I'm Justin Sloan. So I am a video game writer, author, uh, writer of screenplays and NFT stuff, which I can dive into if you guys are curious what the hell that means. Nice to meet everybody. We will, we will link that in the show notes so if people are curious, they can reach out. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, first we, we say, yes, the man has Project ADD. He can't commit to anything. So books, movies, scripts, he does all of it because he's just like that. Um, the next part of the introduction is how we first met them. I think... Justin, we met at the 20 books uh, through them, but it's been so long, I honestly don't recall. We've chatted back and forth for years now. Right. I don't think so, actually. I mean, probably roundabout through that whole channel, but I think it was, uh, oh, my brain is blanking on names. It was Tim. Tim, uh, oh, you know. Oh, yeah. Tim yeah, Taylor. he introduced us. He said, you should reach out to this guy because he's awesome. And then somehow we did, and then it was magic. We became best okay. friends ever since. And yeah. Yeah, besties. And uh <laughs> and I've been on your podcast and you've been on mine both yeah. iterations of it. So it's good. Yeah. All exactly. right. So we kept this because you know we're 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 fans of tradition. So we can't let this get started without the religion question. So Starship Troopers, Men in Black, or Ender's Gang. You know what's funny is if I answer this differently than I did last time, I guess that'll just show that I growed though, right? So <laughs> the last time it was Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly. Oh, okay, but good deal. Because I just re-aired that as an archive, I'm like, well, you know the answer to that if change you listen to the archive. So yeah. we change this one up. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna go. I was debating because I love the star I know sci-fi readers are gonna hate me for this, but I love the Starship Troopers movie. When I was getting ready to join the Marines, I think I watched that in the theater and I just laughed my ass off when the guy's head goes flying and my buddy i was joining with hit me in the arm i was so offended and i just i remember that fondly as a, as a fun moment i like the movie too and that's how yeah. i found robert heinlein so i got no awesome. no hate for that but i'm so, gonna say ender's game as the book because i really enjoy that book i i kind of enjoy more of a hey, people who know me know i'm more uh, immature and i love this like ya <laughs> feel in life <laughs> it's just part of who i am and so like any story that is well told but has a ya angle versus you know some ya stories are kind of blah uh, but Ender's Game, I think, is a great one that kind of has that sports story thing going on while also being sci-fi, while also having YA and adult appeal. So I'm going to go with Ender's Game. Okay. And because we're polytheistic and we love the fantasy as well, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Ring, or Wheel of Time? Uh, so this is a toughie. I'm going to say Lord of the Rings because I could watch the hell out of those movies over and over and probably have seen them a hundred times at least at this point, including extended editions. And uh, I'm obsessed. But uh, as far as like... What got me into writing in the first place was the Game of Thrones books, and I just love them so much. So it, it's a struggle, but because the Game of Thrones TV show just horribly screwed up the ending, I, I can't really say that would be at the top of the list. So let's go with the Lord of the Rings. That is an interesting observation, given you just said you love the light YA feel, and then you're switching to grimdark George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah, I'm that all over the place. Quite, that's all that over the place. <laughs> so... Uh, we here at the Blasters and Blades like both the fantastical and the scientific. So which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Yeah. So I was looking back at myself, trying to figure that out. So I do remember my mom reading The Hobbit to me when I was a little babe, <laughs> when I was yeah. like seven or something. And that's a great memory. And I remember playing a lot of video games like Fantasy Star and stuff on the Sega and Sega CD. 
and really being into shining in the darkness and these. So, so I have to say that really what got me into it was more of the fantasy. Um, okay. Of course, I don't think like sci-fi, my first book that I read in sci-fi was probably Dune. And I, of course, loved that, but I was a little bit older. So I'll say the first love was fantasy. Do you remember the Hobbit cartoon that came out with those? Oh my God. Those, uh, Do I remember it. I own it. I watch it all the time. I love it. <laughs> I'll put the yes, soundtrack on for writing sometimes. Yeah. Greatest I, adventure. No, I liked the music, but I didn't. I'm going to have to look up the soundtrack now. Yeah. I have only recently it? started getting into the musical soundtracks for movies because when you realize like that it can invoke the emotions and yeah, uh, I've heard people talk about like, you know, they'll write the, the crappiest movie for like a stage play and be like, but I could make them cry with the music. Yeah. So, and when you start realizing that it can invoke emotions like that, I started to go back and actually listen. Yeah. Although for, for soundtracks for me, I have to say nothing trumps the, um, Oh, what is that one? Um, the, it came out in the 90s. I'm trying to think. It was the uh, the one set in the colonial French and Indian War one. I'm drawing a blank now. Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's a toughie. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis was in it oh, um, back in Last the day. Last of the Mohicans? Last of the Mohicans. There we go. So good. Yeah, uh, that soundtrack. They have it on YouTube where it plays for 10 hours straight and just repeats. Yes. And you put that on the right, you can just get into that methodical rhythm, just the meditation style writing. It's great. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. All right. So was the was the reading uh, your mom reading Hobbit to you your first memory of speculative fiction or was there something before that? Yeah, probably. As I say, like my first memory of myself reading all this stuff was like X-Men comics, Tank Girl. I got a copy of Tank Girl early on in my life and remember that uh, distinctly. <laughs> Such a weird comic and lots of fun. Uh, and it, like the earliest books I remember reading myself, oddly enough, is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I read that. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a good book minus the 100 pages of architecture description. <laughs> <laughs> I read the Reader's Digest for Kids book where they like shortened it out so it wasn't as big. Yeah. They did those uh Scholastic Book Fair had those. They had that one, they had the Three Musketeers where basically they they modernized the language a little bit and cut out all the miscellaneous word filler. Yeah. There. Nice. So I, it's a good one. I I'll remember also, classic book fairs. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember Goosebumps. Goosebumps, I read yeah. a lot of those growing up. Rats of Nim, those books. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're all these distant. I, I often re recount to my wife that I don't have any memories of my youth, like really, like it's such a blur. But uh, yeah, little things are starting to come back as we talk. <laughs> yeah. So. That was those were the days. I don't even know if they do scholastic book fairs anymore, but they, they do. Missing they do. Out yeah, they my got. kids are uh, bringing those back constantly. We're ordering some books on there because it's fun. And what they do now, a lot of them is they'll come with little like necklaces or little cool things to make it feel special for the kids as well. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, what is it you love about speculative fiction as a genre? I mean, uh, probably the escapism. That idea that uh, like I've seen a lot of you know people suffering in life and i love as an author first of all getting those emails from the people who are having hard times in life and just saying oh my god your books have changed my life so much you're getting me through these days you're getting me through this day at the hospital that's amazing uh, on my own side one reason i started getting into it uh, as a reader but also as a writer was probably that and like especially with video games growing up uh with my family you know divorce and then uh issues with my brother got into drugs and my cousin later committed suicide and my aunt was crazy and all these weird things and it's great that you can have these amazing stories that inspire you to get you through the day and get you, you know, to the next day. And I was, I'm not saying I had a sad youth or anything, but just kind of watching more of the people around me struggling and, and seeing how these kind of stories can uplift people. Uh, I'd say that's the biggest part of it for me. 
Okay, that makes sense. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre to include the video games, the the movies, the TV shows, and all that transition into you telling stories in that space? Right, yeah, yeah. So that was part of when 2010, I sit, sat down and I said, I'm going to try to write a book before I'm 50. Uh, I sat there looking out at the snow outside. I recently gone through a breakup or something, and I was just like, oh, my God, how what, what should I do with my life? And I was like, well, the Game of Thrones books inspire me so much. I love them so much why don't i try writing a fantasy book and see what happens and so i did and that just it snowballed i think within like three months i had a hundred thousand words down i was just loving life and i just kept going i took screenwriting classes novel classes enrolled in a creative writing master's degree program at johns hopkins i kept going and just it, it never stopped since <laughs> that's fair that's uh this is the answer that we get a lot is the they just decided they wanted to give it a shot and then it sort of surprised them when it took off yeah, I was trying to read other ones that just weren't catching my attention as much. And I was like, well, I can keep just trying to read random books and hope that something will inspire me or I can try to write something that'll inspire me and hopefully others as I have been in touched. So did you, for your first books, did you try to go the traditional publishing route or did you uh, start at the early wave of the indie revolution of, of writing? Yeah, no, I queried for a while. So I started writing in 2010. I probably started querying around 2012. And then at some point around 2015, when I was at Telltale Games, working on those games there, like Game of Thrones and whatnot, it was awesome. I went to the self, uh, what was it called? The San Francisco Writers Conference. And they had Bella Forrest or Bella Andre talk there and a bunch of other people. And then somebody had pointed me to the self-publishing podcast with Sean and Dave and Johnny. Yeah. And I think the combination of that guest speaker and with them just was like, wait a minute, why... Well, a big part of it, too, was I saw one of my buddies who started with me at Telltale get fired after six months, and it seemed like for no reason. And then other people just started getting thrown under the bus left and right. And I was like, well, crap, this could happen to me someday. Do I want to just be some dude who got a job writing games and then suddenly unemployed? Or do I want to be a guy who has books published already and is doing something else in the meantime so that if I do lose a job, I already have something to jump into? And so I said, instead of sitting around querying all the time and just hoping I find the right person who happens to connect with my story, why don't I find my own audience? and started diving in around 2015 or so. Okay. So many authors will let their own real life experience sort of influence the stories they tell. So are there any specific formidable moments you think that shape you as a storyteller? <clears throat> Good question. Definitely the military. So the first book that I wrote was, I had taken a class in grad school, uh, my international relations graduate school on uh, the Peloponnesian War. And I was looking at how George R. R. Martin took the Wars of the Roses and did that story, the Game of Thrones, kind of based on that, but in a totally, uh, you know, not exact way. <laughs> and so I did the same thing with my fantasy novel. I took the Peloponnesian War, and then I related all my military experience into that and wrote the story uh, about a kid who goes out, gets taken, he gets kidnapped into a neighboring army, forced to fight for them as a slave, and goes through the whole boot camp experience kind of. So, it, you know, loosely based on my experience, <laughs> not exact. Uh, and uh, today, you know, in different ways, I would say that that still plays through, but also like just parts of life. Like I mentioned earlier, what was going on with my brother and my cousin and my aunt and stuff like that. So I recently have been doing this veterans writing project screenplay. And through that, it's very much this idea where I'm looking at like how would, uh, so he's my brother who's on, had to deal with all these drugs issues. His mom uh, got taken away when he was a kid. His dad was shot and killed. So we adopted him. He's my cousin uh, biologically. And uh, so I was looking at if he was to connect with his mom again, he did once and they just never talked after that because he was like, what's the point? But I was like, what would be her redeeming factor? Like uh, in Jaws, the Chief Brody is trying to be part of society and he has to sacrifice himself to be able to be part of that society at the end uh, on the island. 
And so I was looking at a similar idea, like if the mom has to sacrifice herself to be part of her son's life and really be accepted by herself back into society, like to prove like Rocky that she can go the distance, uh, that she's worthy. Uh, so I was looking at all this stuff that really plays on my life, but it's, you know, these moments that are always taken and fictionalized, fictionalized just like the boot camp experience and Peloponnesian War and all that stuff, how I combine those into weird ways that nothing directly relates to my life, but it's definitely inspired by. Yeah, I love the covers for the uh, for the fantasy novels. Are you any plans to go back to those? I don't know. Yeah, so I recently <clears throat> have taken on some big projects that are exciting and in some ways might be time-consuming and overwhelming, but I think they're also going to give me some freedom to be able to go back and just write for fun. And so I think that's been my biggest issue lately is I was writing like crazy for years and just busting out books. And so I probably have somewhere between 50 and hundred novels at this point. Right. And, but I, I started to get to the point where like they weren't, I don't know, they weren't doing as well as I would need them to do to be able to live in California, Los Angeles with a family of five and all that stuff. And so I was like, well, I need to just do something that can make me feel comfortable and be able to just write when I want to and how I want to and not stress about it. Cause that's more fun. Um, right. So, now I'm in that position where I have started to outline books again. I have three that I'm really excited about. Uh, are any fantasy? Uh, that is a question that I do not know the answer to. I'm doing a middle grade book that goes into fantasy realms for sure, but it's kind of sci-fi fantasy. Uh, and then the other two, I think, are actually more sci-fi. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay. So speaking of uh, military, uh, you did mention that you served in the Marine Corps. So um, do you feel like that sort of affects the way you tell stories other than just the obvious, the boot camp uh, experience with the fantasy? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot of it, you know, goes into the main ideas of like camaraderie and whatnot. And then I traveled to the military. So there's play on that. And, and of course I traveled after, but it still kind of got me off on the right footing. And I do a lot of fighting talk in my books and I was a martial arts instructor in the Marines. Uh, but I'd also say, you know, on the other, the non-creative side, meeting deadlines, being organized and all that, I'm sure the Marines helped me with. So you said you were a martial arts instructor. Was that uh, the the Marines belt system that they brought in? MCMAP. Uh, or, yeah, the Marine Corps yeah. Martial Arts Program. So, yeah, I started, uh, I was there. I, so before I went into the Marines, I was thinking about becoming a Kung Fu instructor as my full-time job. They approached me at my Kung Fu studio because I was there like 10 hours a day on Saturdays and other days as much as I could. And, and so I'd always thought about that. So in 2001 or 2000, whenever they came around and said, hey, we're starting a new MCMAP program. Who wants to do it? I raised my hand and volunteered, and it was awesome. And I got up to the black belt before I left. So I was a black belt instructor, uh, meaning like I'd go outside for two hours a day and punch people and grapple, and it was awesome. Good times. <laughs> and they paid you for it. Yeah. So I remember when I went through boot camp in 98 for the Army, they were still teaching that old World War II-style Army chop where it looks like you're yeah. you know, an <laughs> old broken action figure. Mm -hmm. And then as I was getting out, when I was going through the striker recertification course, because I'd been light infantry, they had us do, as originally it was like the Gracie method that sort of evolved into whatever they're doing now. Yeah. So I, I just remember our sergeants telling us that we're only teaching you enough martial arts to get your butt kicked and not actually win a fight. Oh, man, so for sure. <laughs> the Marines actually were the first one to realize that and, and start to go to something useful, I think. Even then, like... After the Marines, I went off and trained in uh, Tokyo for a bit and uh, in, uh, in Muay Thai. And then I went off to Thailand for a little bit and tried it there, too, and uh, taught at another studio in D.C. And, um, yeah, I mean, like everything that you learn in the Marines is definitely going to make you better than not having it. But when you start going up against people who actually do train in this kind of stuff, you totally get your butt kicked. 
the uh, the assumption I think with the military is it's trading you for the lowest common denominator. So yeah. like if you get up close with the bad guy and you're too close to you know bring your rifle to bear, you've got to do something. Sure. And they're hoping the other guy's as incompetent as you are, so maybe that'll be just enough. Yeah, in that muscle memory so that it's instinctual. And you'll be surprised. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people could not even throw a punch. Didn't even know what they were supposed to do with their fists or their wrists or anything like that before they started this program. Like, I'd get these gunnery sergeants out there who look like they're trying to flot a, swat a fly. And you're like, what is this? So, yeah, if they got into hand-to-hand, they would die instantly, I'm sure, especially against somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, not so anymore, though, because I trained them. <laughs> I did the Micmac program that they use the bayonet as well i remember going through the old uh infantry bayonet drill course yeah that's a good question i don't think so they definitely had a blade involved like we learned hand-to-hand knife fighting but encounters but uh, not bayonets no i, I don't know ima- i imagine they might have still done that in boot camp as like a separate right. part of it but i don't know interesting so uh, after all those hours of training that when we went to iraq they didn't give us any anybody that had knife is what they bought themselves and brought themselves so. oh man <laughs> well you got to take it away from the enemy that's the deal <laughs> yeah, that's what it is, apparently. Just, but the problem with that is their AK-47 bayonets don't do well on an M16. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, do you ever draw on people you actually knew when you were in the Marine Corps when you are writing? Yeah, for sure. There's some people that I either highly respected or highly disrespected, and they've both uh, come through in different ways. Uh, especially there's okay. the staff sergeant who's probably the biggest douchebag in the world, and he's he's come through in a few of my novels as as a as the villain under different names. Uh, yeah and then on the good side i had a roommate who was really cool and uh, kind of inspiring in many ways i had a great uh warrant officer who was my boss for a while and he he just inspired everything i think i knew about leadership at the time he was the best so for sure they've come so, through so what was your uh your mos when you were in the uh, marine corps i was at 2651 which was uh started off as a cryptologic linguist uh, doing some kind of signals intelligence thing. And then it transitioned to basically just being like the computer guy slash people who uh, do the security clearance investigations and read it, read-ins and all that stuff. Oh, fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept my MOS simple, you know? Nice. Keep your yeah. finger off the bang stick and you're good to go. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about how your time in the Marine Corps affects the way you tell stories, but do you think it affects the way you engage with it as like a reader and a consumer? Uh, good question. I don't think so. Uh, like I know a lot of military veterans or people who wish they'd gone to the military read so much military sci-fi. I find that so many people are trying to cater to those, to that audience that like so much of these books become like, Oh, look at this new gun I got. And look at this description of this other gun. And I get pretty bored about that. For me, it's all about the character and the emotional journey. Uh, so if a well-told story relates to the military somehow and is, is a, a great story with an emotional journey, then that's awesome. And I'll get into it. But uh, there's like, I don't know how the military would affect the reading one way or the other now. So for some people, it's, you know, they get a love affair with the gun porn. Um, <laughs> think think like Monster Hunter International that Larry Correa is so famous for writing, which good stories. But I mean, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that tends to attract the veteran readers, yeah. I think. Uh, the other the other angle is when people get stuff so glaringly wrong that your mind just can't not knife hand at them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think some people, though, like for me, I can sometimes like grin and bear it and just turn that part of my brain off and just accept it is what it is i know yeah. not everyone can and so it affects what they're able to read for sure and i think a lot of like i was saying a lot of people who wish they'd gone military they'll read these books and try to criticize them as if oh these people don't know what they're talking about but i'm like no this is the real military like you're reading this expecting it to be some version of military that you think it is because of hollywood or because of some imagination you have which is not the real military or maybe it's more of the infantry but i'm telling the story of non-infantry which wasn't the exact same 
like I just read a screenplay by a buddy of mine and it's just pure military talk the whole time. And I'm like, dude, nobody I knew in the military talked like that. Maybe, I don't know. I was an infantry. So maybe they're all sitting around just nonstop using language that normal people don't understand. But that wasn't my experience. Yeah. Every time I think about the language issue, you remember that scene in, um, I want to say it was Renaissance man where, uh, uh, Danny DeVito's like asking for directions and they give him like this long three minute spiel of all acronyms. And he's like, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's how it was in boot camp. And then as soon as you leave boot camp, uh, it never happened again in my experience. So, yeah. So transitioning away from the, from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So have you had any, uh, cool fan art or had fans cosplay your characters yet? Yeah, so I also, not cosplay, that'd be pretty cool, but I also write on the uh, middle grade sides, which means like audiences in the 8 to 12 range, uh, years old. And so I've had a few people uh, send me their kids' drawings, uh, reaching out, even from France there was one. Uh, and it's always really cool, and I'm always really excited to see their interpretations of the characters. Okay, drawings totally counts. And um, has anyone um, asked for your autograph since you started writing? Yeah, I actually attended an event that was interesting. So one of my first books I ever wrote was about a girl who turns into a bird at kind of as her way of escaping the news that her dad just died. Uh, he was deployed to the military and does not come back. And so her way of trying to learn how to cope with that is she becomes a bird through this necklace that he left for her and escapes and her necklace gets stolen. And then she's trying to debate, do I want to go back and even be a human again? And she decides she does and goes and tries to get the necklace and all this stuff. And it's this journey for her of learning how to cope with loss and all that. And so I did a book signing where the group that does these grief counseling for kids or something like that is like an, a weekend or a week long trip for them. They had me come and they gave away a bunch of these books to these kids and uh, had me do a sit down signing for that with them. And it was very awesome and very uh, emotional, uh, you know, like all these kids coming through, who you know, they've just recently lost somebody, a dad or a brother or a sister or a cousin, whatever. And uh, yeah, heart wrenching. And but also very awesome that I was able to do that because I got feedback, you know, that like I was the only author they've ever met in person and how inspiring that was. And people reaching out months later, six months later or a year later talking about this experience. So really cool. All right. Well, we want to uh, to keep this as uplifting as possible, and that is some, some heavy stuff. So what about weird or funny interactions with fans you've had since you started writing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's weird or funny, really, but uh, just I went out to this uh, writing event uh, recently, kind of, and, uh, and I was sitting there going down to this uh, like author lunch dinner thing, and uh, the, the girl next to me, the lady next to me, started talking about my books, and I'm like, what? who are you? And then she mentioned her name. And I was like, Oh my God, she's been like one of my early fans on that, on those books. And just like had been emailing me all the time talking about them and how she wanted to become an author because of it. And then she was at this author thing. So that was really cool. So more inspiring and cool to see that people follow that path. And, uh, and that was a fun experience being able to just, and I guess she found out that I was there and not stalked me, but you know, found me and was looking for that experience to sit down and have dinner with me. So that was, that was nice. It is. I um I had one guy as a Marine veteran who reached out because I mentioned like I haven't hid the fact that I started writing in a therapy class like writing is therapy that the VA offered yeah uh, and and I was able to publish his first short story in one of my anthologies which was kind of cool oh, nice uh, and it started with the email so yeah you, you're always surprised and no matter how long you write I've talked to people that have been writing for decades that when people write you and they say hey this story affected me in this way like it, it's it's always humbling I think. When, yeah, when people sure. do that. So it's cool that you motivated someone to add more art to the world. That's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> All right. So Indeed. Th 
this is the part where you tell us everything you have written. So can you give us the reader's digest of your body of work? Sure. As you mentioned, I started off with the fantasy that we already discussed that had to do with the Peloponnesian War. And as I've mentioned, I've done some middle grade novels. I don't need to go too much into those, except for the fact that I just recently pitched one to Sony. So I'm anxiously waiting to see if they'll take that as a feature or TV series. I pitched it as a TV series. Really exciting stuff. That's called A Video Game Stole My Sister. And I, I had fun with that. I'm working on book two right now. That's for the middle grade audience. Uh, it's kind of like a lit RPG, but not quite. More game lit, I guess, for kids. What'd you say? I was going to ask. I was going to ask if that was yeah. lit RPG or game lit. Yeah, it, it's got a little bit of that, but I'm trying to keep it simple for the kids, you know, and get them into it and have fun. We had done a Minecraft unofficial series before, me and uh, with uh, with the co-writer PT Hilton, and yeah. the kids all loved that. So I'm kind of angling in on that direction, which is fun for me to write and fun for the my kids to hear me read to them at nights. And yeah, so from there I went on and wrote a bunch of sci-fi stuff, as you might be aware, and we might have talked last time. I really got my breakthrough as being a full-time author with Michael Anderley. Uh, he yeah. partnered with me after I left Telltale, or I partnered with him, I should say, uh, to write 16 books in his universe. And that was awesome. And it really helped me basically pay rent for the next three or four years. <laughs> and during that time, after the 16th book or so, I started writing my own series, came out with Shadow Core, which is a trilogy, a Syndicate Wars series, which had multiple authors involved, uh, some other series that uh, mostly were myself, but that I did a couple other spinoffs, such as uh, I did a series with L. Bowers, which is really cool. It's uh, it's called, um, ugh, I'm blanking on it right now. It's L. Primal Link. So that idea is that it's kind of Event Horizon, but with more kind of science fantasy, where this group of SEALs goes to explore this planet where a group of Marines went missing. And uh, while they're there, they start discovering these weird like underground pyramids and this signals that's coming off of these metal uh, the pyramids are metal, uh, coming off of the metal pyramids. And then they discover these uh, metal, metallic, uh, like robotic animals that are in there as well. And there's this whole mystery around this and finding what happened to the Marines. And it's kind of cool, kind of event horizon with more of a uplifting fantasy take to it, or sci-fi fantasy take to it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's fantasy exactly, but I, I think anybody who reads sci-fi and military sci-fi especially would probably call it fantasy. So <laughs> there you go. Because uh, it's not so, magic, but it goes into that direction. So a lot of that kind of stuff. So you've mentioned that you're sort of all over the place with the way you produce your your content and, and the audiences you entertain. Have you considered some of the like I think Amazon did it with Vela uh, mimicking like the radish model where they they do it chapter by chapter installations? No, I don't think I'd like that really. Uh, so I would say that branding wise, like especially over the last couple of years, I've very much branded the Sloan stuff as uh, sci-fi or space fantasy, depending on which way you want to look at it. Uh, so I very much leaned into that. But then I do have fun with these other genres. And like right now I'm writing, I'm kind of doing what you're talking about, but not for Vela. Uh, is it Vela? Is that what you said? Yeah, I, the name. I haven't version. used it. Some people have recommended it to me, but I looked into it. And I was like, I don't, I don't see the investment. Like if they said, hey, here's an advance of $100,000, I'd say, okay, I'll give it a try. But to just jump in these days without knowing what the payoff is for sure, it's not really my thing. And so I'd rather just write some books and have like four of them ready to go and then release them probably. But for one of the NFT projects I'm doing, I'm writing a sci-fi slash science fantasy novel series and doing it a chapter a week and then leave, leaving them with three choices at the end of each chapter. And then the voters on, uh, on online, their community gets to vote on those choices. And then whichever one wins the next week is based off of that choice. So kind of oh, cool. your adventure style. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so that's great. And they're paying me up front, which is fun. I always enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> and, that yeah. does make it difficult for you because you have to have constantly whatever outline like say I, i'm a plotter so i plot everything so the idea of constantly updating my plotting ideas yeah. based on like that would be 
that's a fun mental exercise, I imagine, but it might drive me bonkers. Yeah, it's crazy. And they also, I mean, I had to make sure I have freedom on that one because if they had like too many restrictions, that would just make it too complicated, I think. So that's what's, and I, and I have an idea of where I want it to go. And so the choices are a lot of the times like, like on this recent one, you're presented with this other guy who you think might be a bad guy, but he grabs this other person and says, slit her throat, I'll help you. And then you've kind of found out right before that there that there is some reason you might not trust her. And so it's like, well, maybe they're wrong about this guy being a bad guy. Which side do I kind of go with here? Uh, so it's like that kind of fun stuff. And so we're really, that could take you in two total different directions, but I still know where it's going to lead three steps from now. It just might change the two steps that get to that third step. And of course, the emotional journey that goes along with it. So sure. <laughs> I outline on a very high level for this kind of stuff, like, and then let it get some fluidity within. And I'm, I'm always like that with my regular books too. I probably do like a five page outline and more detailed up front, less in the second half, knowing that I'm going to have some things that transition and change around within there that won't totally change where the book goes, but will definitely change how it gets there. Fair. So while all of that sounds fascinating, we're going to talk about the Kari, the hunt. Uh, so where did you come up with the premise for this universe? Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so this is going to be a kind of different answer than I imagine most people give here. Because what I was doing at this stage in my life was I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> and my buddy said, hey, I have story ideas and a lot of money, but no time to write books. And he inspired me to get writing in the first place, actually. He had done well in screenwriting back in the day. And I didn't realize that was a thing that people could really do if you're not already connected into that world. So he inspired me to get into writing. Yay. And now he's like, I'll pay you some money if you'll write a book with me kind of based off of my idea. So he came up with the initial premise for the story. And then I sat there and did like an outline for him. And then we went with it. So it was nice because he gave me an advance, you know, as if a traditional publisher had given me an advance. And I didn't have to stress like, is this story going to do well? Is it not going to do well? I don't know. Maybe I don't feel like writing today because I'm in my own head and it sucks. Uh, so <laughs> I love this process of just knowing that there's some money already, knowing that I'm going to write this book. And if it, people love it, that's awesome, but I don't have to worry about it keeping my lights on. Uh, so the premise uh, was basically, I don't know if you want to dive into that yet, but yeah, the, the premise was he and I coming together and saying, what's cool? What do we love? We love, we were both, we met in Japan actually. So we're both heavily inspired by Japanese culture. And he knows that I was branding for the sci-fi direction with some fluidity in there this one's pure sci-fi no fantasy to it and we went from there all right so before we dig in any deeper uh we are going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man so uh stick with us through that commercial interlude ravencon one of virginia's longest running science fiction and fantasy conventions is back live and in person april 29th to may 1st 2022 after a few years away, it is making its triumphant return to its ancestral homeland of Richmond in a brand new, bigger and better location, the Virginia Crossings Hotel. This year's author guest of honor is none other than the prolific fantasy novelist Terry Brooks, and our musical guest of honor is the unstoppable Rhiannon's Lark. And if you're worried that critically acclaimed fantasy novels or songs about krakens might be all that we have to offer this time around, never you fear. Our theme this year is flashback, and we've invited so many of our favorite guests from our history, RavenCon has over 250 hours of scheduled programming from almost 100 guests packed into three days, ranging from book readings, workshops, panels, roundtable discussions, movie showings, and more. And that's not even talking about the escape room, the book swap, the anime room, the masquerade, the tabletop gaming rooms, the art show, the Webster Award, or the charity auction. Head to ravencon.com now to register, follow us on social media for live updates, and we'll see you soon. RavenCon, the con of opportunity, flashing back to Richmond, Virginia, April 29th to May 1st at the Virginia Crossings Hotel. 
All right. Well, thank you for sticking with us uh, as we we get all capitalist on you. Uh, but before we dig in any deeper, we were talking about his Kari the Hunt books. And we can't do that without first looking at this glorious cover. Um, oh, I got to share the screen. That helps. <laughs> all right. It's like I've never done this before or something. All right. So we're going to share that glorious cover. There we go. So where did the idea for this art come from? Like, where, where did you get this this uh, image style? Because it, it definitely reminded me when I first saw it of some of the like the Conan stuff I remember from back in the day with that vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we had the idea for the cover before we really had the book formed. Like one of our main things early on was like, we want to. So the main guy is a hedge fund dude. He walks into he gets led by his buddy, who's his boss at the hedge fund, into this millionaire's top right, you know, top floor mansion in New York or whatever. Uh, and up there, he has this huge head. And originally, we had it just like hanging on uh, cords or whatever. He has this huge skeleton head of an alien creature up there. And he's like, I'm going to take you guys on this safari. Are you coming? Kind of situation. So that's where it all started with was this, like that concept of that initial scene and that image. And so we really just like we had thought about, do we want action scenes from later in the book? Do we want we, we had talked about maybe just some dudes with armor and women, people with armor and weapons and some big kind of like kaiju style monster in the distance or something. And we're like, nah, I feel too kind of corny. And so we landed on this as kind of a cool hint of sci-fi with, uh, oh, the inspiration on my side was Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones always has Peter Dinklage or whoever, whomever with those huge dragon skulls, you know. And so we, I thought, oh, this is kind of a cool way to pay homage to that. Okay. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch for this novel be? Yeah. So I'd say a hedge fund man uh, finds himself on a safari into space, hunting down kaiju-style monsters for huge rewards. But when everything goes to hell, he learns he's being used as bait to lure out a mysterious alien group uh, that's part of the safari leader's larger plan. Does that make what sense? do you think? What do you think? Uh, that does sound interesting. I saw this because we were originally going to talk about your upcoming mech series. And I'm like, no, this cover is too awesome. We have to talk about this. Sure. Uh, but what do you think makes this novel special? Yeah. I mean, for me, part of it is that it is a hedge fund dude. I think that's kind of fun. It's like you're, I don't know if it's your everyday man for some people, but, you know, it feels like a normal guy who pursued a life in, in this track, tracked, uh, went off to the, do the finance thing. But then he finds himself in this insane situation and has to try to survive. Uh, versus a lot of the stories I tell really are like the Marine or the Navy SEAL or that kind of stuff. So that, first of all, uh, gets me. Second of all, like the emotional journey of he's going up there with his friend. His friend, I'm going to spoil that part. He dies fairly early on. And so it's like trying to deal with that, trying to survive while being like feeling like he's all alone and then reconnecting with some of the other group and finding out uh, what it's like to try to befriend the more military people in the in the group. Like there's a, a, a Texan cowboy guy like older man who he has to befriend and like the kind of people that this uh hedge fund guy would not normally ever converse with he's now thrown into the mix but of course it has that fun japanese culture uh part of it that like rubbed me a little bit weird at first is it almost feels a little bit avatar uh <laughs> ripped off <laughs> a little bit of rip off of avatar in the way that it you meet this local group and they're kind of like these tall alien like ninja style characters but i also think that's a lot of fun you know it's like i said it's japanese inspired and actually when you get into the story and find out who they are can i just spoil it how many are people gonna read it uh, you're gonna read it but it, the, the, the simple spoil without spoiling is that this other group 
are like a, a group who colonized this place a long time ago and they were from Japan. And of course, effects have changed them over time. So that doesn't really spoil too much. But that I think ties into how that Japanese culture part is inspired that really um, made me enjoy writing this book because I lived in Japan for three years. I've loved it. I studied the language for many years and I, anything that has that connection uh, gets me sucked in right away. That's fair. Uh, so which tropes do you feel like uh, Kari the Hunt hits the best? Good question. Uh, like I said, kind of the avatar trope in a sense where like, and that, you know, that's kind of a ding against myself, I'll say. <laughs> like, because I do feel uh, that, like the idea where this guy's there and he almost saves this group. And it's not a local alien tribe, so it's different. And you could argue that the more they help him uh, stop this other guy than anything. But, uh, but it does kind of have that trope. Like I could see, I think one review called that out and then I was like, oh yeah, it does kind of feel that way, although it's not exact. So I'd say that. But then if you go along with uh, some of these kind of more anime style with the uh, the kaiju and stuff like that and the, the characters like a tsundere kind of or something, <laughs> which is the, the girl who's kind of mean at first but then comes around, uh, has some of that angles in there. So we kind of took some of the tropes that fall more on the anime side uh, and threw them into more of a serious-ish military sci-fi. But a big part of it is I was looking at it as more like, hey, if I, when I was writing it, I was thinking if this could be pitched to Hollywood, how would I write it? And so I really think somebody could take this and film the whole thing in Laos, for example, and it would be fine. Like you wouldn't, you would have to do some special effects Jurassic Park style, but that was filmed in what, 95, 96, something like that. And yeah. I'm sure we could mimic similar uh, <laughs> effects these days without too much of a budget. So that's what I was thinking as I was doing this. There's no like huge spaceship battles uh, or any of that sort. There are some some ships, you know, that are involved. And of course, the travel, the journey to get up there. But uh, but a lot of it's just like these this cool group, more like alien or aliens, aliens uh, kind of st style story where there's a group trying to survive and baddies and monsters. Okay, so what about subgenres? Which uh, subgenre categories of, of sci-fi or fantasy do you feel like this this slots into the best? Yeah, I was trying to think about that, and I think that was a marketing mistake. I told my buddy up front too. I was like, if we're not leaning hard into a subgenre, it's going to be harder to market this book, and it hasn't been one of the best-selling that I've done because I don't think it does fall well into a subgenre. Feel free to tell me if you think. There is one, but I'd definitely say, you know, like I said, in movie style, it's kind of more in line with Aliens, Avatar, Dune, those kind of stories. It has some Dune uh, similarities for sure. But I, yeah, lumping it into a subgenre is definitely a toughie for this one. So if you, dear reader, are interested in this novel and you go and read it and you say, this is definitely X subgenre, you should comment on the uh, the episode when we post it on our Facebook group or on YouTube and, uh, and let us know what you think. Or you can reach out to Justin directly. His contact information will be in the show notes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like an Indiana Jones slash adventure in space, as I would say. <laughs> that's uh, that's my cup of tea. So now let's talk about the story itself. What can you tell us about the main character? What makes him unique in the crowded field of science fiction and fantasy? Yeah. Well, uh, as we already talked about, you know, the idea of who he is as a character, the the hedge fund kind of guy, the, the normal down to earth dude. Uh, I don't see too much of that in these stories, you know, but, but maybe that's because I mostly write in the military sci-fi or the space fantasy genres that are heavily military sci-fi influenced. Uh, but I really enjoyed that about writing him. Um, but he's also kind of a normal dude who uh, has a lot of fun and gets to. So one thing that happens and why I say it's like Dune to a degree is there. 
uh, I'm, I'm spoiling it galore, but I, you know, people, by the time they listen to this and then read it later, they'll forget. Uh, so one of the issues that the safari leader is doing is he's up there trying to mine this uh, plant that's kind of like a fancy drug that gives you effects that would help in terms of, uh, it's kind of like that movie, um, you know what I'm talking about, but they take the pills and it makes your mind expand as Bradley Cooper, uh, Limitless. Is that what it yeah. was? Anyway, so it's kind of got that kind of effect, but it also can help you in fighting in terms of that and whatnot. So so there's some of that going on where he does get involved with uh, this and is able to use it to help fight and becomes kind of a badass, of course, because what, what fun would the story be if all he knows how to do is crunch numbers? But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really followed him on the writing side of it for that emotional journey of him being a normal dude trying to figure out how to survive in these situations. Okay. I've written too many of these like gunfight battles where I just get kind of like, okay, how am I going to make this one different? So I like looking at it from different character perspectives. Speaking of uh, different character perspectives, were there any secondary characters in this novel that you thought were, uh, that you liked, that you liked uh, working with? Yeah. The cowboy guy that I mentioned, the old cowboy dude, who's kind of like bitter and kind of in his own ways, you know, I think, He's fun. Uh, kind of like I was thinking of True Grit when I was writing that part of it. Uh, True Grit is the story of the young girl who hires the the guy, the marshal, to go hunt down this guy who killed her dad. Uh, so I was kind of looking at him in this similar way. And so I had a lot of fun with that. <clears throat> and, sorry, and, uh, Tommy is the main uh, safari guy, the, the other hedge fund dude who brings the main character up into space. He's a lot of fun because he's like, you're going to probably not like him. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably be okay when he dies but you know he, he's like your best buddy who's like a bit of a womanizer and a bit of a cocky arrogant jerk uh so anyway i have fun with him and you know i don't want to see him die and i have friends like, like that i don't want to see them die either but i but i enjoy that part of the story where uh, you know he dies and that's okay <laughs> sound like an ass because you, you're a bad bad man mr sloan <laughs> all right <laughs> so uh what about the bad guys other than the um the aliens that they're hunting. Are there any bad guys that your characters have to confront? Obviously, without spoilers. Uh, yeah, I mean, the spoiler thing is tough, as you've seen me struggle with over these last few minutes. Uh, <laughs> but definitely, there are a lot of baddies. So some of the main people that you meet up front will end up being baddies. Some uh, they, they bring in this other group that are kind of android, uh, android military people. And you'll fight against, the main guy will fight against them. The the kaiju are not such a big deal. They you find out they're being manipulated to cause things like a stampede that just totally destroys a space uh, spaceship that's going to help us get out of there, and things like that that happen. But they're not really the baddies. They're you know there's threats like you're walking through the woods and there's these creatures that are on the trees, and if you don't get out of that situation right away, they're going to eat your face off. But mostly it's the like I mentioned in the 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 logline kind of the the safari leader. Uh, he's going to cause the most trouble. So. so it sounds like it's a little bit of man versus nature kind of um, sort of trope and, and um, threat pattern. So it's not necessarily that the, the bear is bad. It's just the bear is going to be a bear and bear wants to eat you. Wait, yeah, but, but the real, but I mean, but with the spoiler in effect, <laughs> it's really man versus man. It's 100% man versus man. It's not man versus alien. It's not man versus beast. It's really just man versus man. And that's where the final showdown comes in. Okay. Uh, so speaking of Final Showdown, if your characters met you in a back alley and they knew that you were the creator of this world and the instigator of all their torment, how do you think that plays out? I mean, you do have the martial arts training, which most authors w would not have. Uh, let's face it, a lot of authors are less than healthy people. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you have a chance against this uh, hedge fund manager turned safari expert? 
Yeah, but let's think about this for a second. At the end of this book, he's actually riding off to go on a cool new adventure that he learned about through helping somebody else uh, overtake the bad guy. Um, he's got a girl that's probably going to be down with him from now on, and uh, and he's a badass. So I think really he's going to shake my hand and say, hey, man, you hooked me up. This is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> But if he wanted to fight me at that point in his life, uh, I'm getting chubby, dude. I'm getting older. I got some medical issues. I'd probably get my ass whooped. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so you got to keep him at a distance and, and use your uh your long rifle skills that's, yeah. that's the trick calling my kids that's... to tackle him and distract him so that i can come on my elbow. <laughs> yeah, they got to earn their dinner right <laughs> yeah 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 but if i met him at the beginning of the book he'd be done for outstanding so finally <laughs> what about the universe itself so is this near future is this modern like wh where does this sort of play in in relation to now yeah, very near future. Like, I think we said it 20 or 30 years from now. Um, so America is not, the world is not so different. You know, they have these massive sky rises that are more so than they have now and some tech in there and whatnot. But it's it's definitely um, like maybe as far as minority report, but not quite there. You know, how the world without the future seers, of course. But uh, as far as how that world looks, like you might have some of that, those pods moving around and stuff, but nothing insane. So do the um, humans on Earth know that aliens have been contacted or is this sort of secret going on in the background stuff? Yeah, there's there's this kind of stuff where they've traveled to other worlds and they know about uh, like the kaiju school thing is not like a secret. They just never have seen one like this guy's never seen one in person, but they're aware that there are creatures on other planets. I don't think they're aware of any uh, intelligent life on other planets um, until they get there uh, and then they find out, you know the spoiler again, people close your ears if you don't want to hear that. Like I, like I mentioned, you know, that the, the aliens that they think are the intelligent aliens are actually just humans who colonized it uh, like 20 years ago. And they've been affected by what's on the planet and the drugs that are there and all that kind of stuff. Okay. That, uh, that sounds interesting. Um, you mentioned the avatar similarity. So do you make the aliens blue? Yeah. So they're not really aliens though. And so no, <laughs> I think they do have a skin uh, difference, like it's slight miscoloration, but it wasn't blue. I forget what it is off the top of my head. They definitely consume some kind of liquid that has a gold uh, angle to it. So they might be slightly yellowish, which is kind of probably a bad choice on my part. If I did that, considering that they have the Japanese influence, which is, you know, <laughs> just yeah. right now, but it's a, uh, yeah. So they have this gold, gold drink that's there. That's related to the, uh, the plant that they grind down and turn into this kind of dust like stuff that gives you special um, enhancements. Okay. So right now, Carrie, the hunt uh, stands alone, you know, one, the loneliest number and all that. So is their story, is his story done? Will there be more from these or, you know, you mentioned it hadn't sold as well as you would have hoped. Yeah. And I do hope though, that that's my thing, right? Like I mentioned, I have these new projects that are going on that are uh, a lot of fun and probably not as time consuming, but still pay nicely. And so I'm looking at that as my excuse to be able to write just whatever I feel like and have fun with it on the side, meaning they won't be as quick. You know, I won't be as fast of a writer as I used to be. Uh, so I will put an asterisk on my answer here and the asterisk being, I hope so. And then I'll say, uh, yeah, it was set up for a book two to come and more. And same thing with this next book that we're doing. It's definitely planned as a series. Um, but for these ones, we're not going to like rush it. We're just going to have fun. We're going to release them uh, faster than George R. R. Martin, but not as fast as Justin Sloan from three years ago. <laughs> so, so you still might be Patrick Rothfuss then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs>
but I'm having a lot of fun with these middle grade books too. So it's like, I'm kind of just living in this, like, I want to keep the Sloan stuff, you know, branded. So like the next one is that, like we mentioned that mech story about a boy who goes into the mech world and kind of more of a sci-fi YA, YA angle to it. And I have another one outlined that I think will be really fun. That is also more military mech stuff. Uh, and, I, and I like going this direction uh, with my own pace and then doing some middle grade books whenever I feel like it to keep my sanity. And because the kids really love that. I have three kids now, uh, four, seven, and nine. And they love when I read my books to them when, when it's a good book. I've been able to learn which ones are a little less interesting through this process. Uh, and then I have a couple of screenplays that are being considered by places, which is exciting. Uh, one being very sci-fi, but more like grounded sci-fi or elevated sci-fi is another word they use for um, more of these kind of thought sci-fi movies. Um, so yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it, but I'm not going to like go, oh my God, I got to get book two out because ego or whatever other weird reason there might be. It's just for fun. So I would say if you're looking to get something quality made for movies these days, I've been watching the YouTube channel Dust. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. You should check it out. It's like just spelled like D-U-S-T. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes for you, dear listener. But they've got a YouTube channel where they're doing amazing things huh. uh, with with sci-fi movies. Cool. Is it indie stuff or? Yeah, it's all indie stuff. And it's better than some of what I've seen like from some of the – the big publishing houses, you know? Yeah. What's so interesting I, is like Roku and Tubi and all these other places are uh, coming up with original content now too and looking around. So it's like everybody's trying to come up with their original content. Uh, so there's some opportunities out there. So for your middle grade stuff, is that published under uh, Justin Sloan as well? Or is that a different name? Uh, I put that under, it was originally because I didn't know what I was doing. And then I decided to specify them for the also bots and for marketing purposes and all that. So now they're under Justin M. Stone, S-T-O-N-E. I, I asked because we have some of the people that listen actually listen with their kids. Oh. Uh, so I, I have to warn episodes if it's uh, the language gets a little salty. But knowing that there are uh, kids books out there, that would be something they'd be interested in. So Yeah, and they're uh, doing well. Like it's funny because it's such a different market. So the print book of that one has been hovering around the twenty five hundred range for like four months now, uh, in terms of ranking on Amazon, and and that's interesting because all my Sloan book print books have never done well. <laughs> like you'll sell print books, but they never go below like ten thousand ranking. And for me anyway, uh, well as an ebooks, you know of course, but uh, the ebook on the middle grade stuff they barely sell at all. Like I'll be lucky to break thirty thousand on those. Um, for people who don't pay attention to ranking, they don't know what I'm saying. But, you know, if you're a rank below like 10,000 or especially in the one to 2,000 range, that's kind of nice. Uh, versus, you know, if you're at like a 50 to 100,000 range, you're barely selling at all. So, yeah, you can always pay attention if you feel like it. All right. So I will get with you after the show and we'll get all those links for people that are interested in and where to buy your uh, your middle grade stuff for their kiddos. Um, so, we know that this is what we'll get back on uh, the Kari, the hunt. Uh, we know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and magic. So what sort of tech can we expect from these books? <laughs> what do we put on the, uh, this is an old copy here. I was looking at what I wrote down here. It says like, it said before I changed it, cause there's two uses of bigs in here, which I don't like, but it said big guns, massive alien monsters and big egos. So maybe I changed something to huge or something like that. Huge guns, <laughs> alien monsters and big egos. What could possibly go wrong? And that basically sums it up. There's like these weapons that they use. A lot of the weapons they use actually are, are they were originally using for mining and terraforming. And then they've adapted them to be used as weapons now because the alien start alien group, alien group started attacking 
the local, the miners and the drug operations and using those against them. So there's like one thing that kind of levels uh, a whole field. Uh, and if you turn that against a person, it's just going to obliterate them uh, and some other fun weapons. And of course, the military brings their own weapons in, in which case it's just kind of awesome assault rifles. But uh, yeah, we got a little mixture going on. And in the picture here, you'll see some massive guns as well. Um, and so we, we have some some huge guns that can only be carried with mech enhancements. Uh, early on, the main guy finds um, uh, a mech enhancement, like what do you call the uh, exoskeleton in his room? And he doesn't know who gave it to him. And so that's one of the mysteries that you find out is who's on his side and who's trying to help him out in the situation, knowing that he's being set up. Uh, and through using that exoskeleton, he's able to handle one of these huge guns that nobody else can use without it. So fun stuff like that. So the um, mining and uh, industrial tech being converted, that's very uh, aliens vibe. But I, given how technology advances, it is not inconceivable that that might actually be where that kind of stuff uh, has its first uses, especially when you start thinking the original. I mean, we've got exoskeletons and, and mech sort of robot type deals that uh, that are being built now. The yeah. problem is, of course, battery power to power them, which means they've got to be directly wired in. And if you can't leave within an X foot radius of the plug, right. then that does limit you to things like industrial uses on the yeah. short term. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at some point he has to ditch it because of that reason. Uh, I imagine that was the reason why we did that. Because I know at some point he ditches it. And I'm sure we had that conversation about energy and how it stays <laughs> going and all that and then of course he can't use his big humongous gun anymore and it's so sad so of all the tech that you invented for this universe which one would you like to have for your daily use uh good question um i mean honestly just this thing here that levitates the huge skeleton head that'd be awesome if i had the skeleton head as well <laughs> just play that so, in my living room okay, so how would you abuse that tech that allows <laughs> things to levitate Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're just spitballing weird stuff now, right? And just hanging out there, <laughs> meditation, sit there cross-legged in the, in the sky, looking out over my hills in the distance. <laughs> then you could sell it and not tell them how you're doing it. And you could sell yourself out yeah. guru classes online. Magic. Exactly. Be rich. But I mean, of course, the next stuff would be great. I actually have hip problems sometimes. Like yesterday, I woke up at 11 o'clock at night because my hip is going problematic and I can go sleep for four hours and like, like, you know, in theory, it'd be great to have these kind of mech enhancements that you see on YouTube with some people using that helps them walk. I hopefully will never get to that point where it's so bad. But, uh, you know, for people who definitely need that, that's the kind of tech that I look forward to seeing more of in the world. Uh, so in theory, and if I ever need it, it'd be great to have as well. Okay. So your universe clearly has aliens in it because they hunt them. Um, so how do you go about creating them when you write? Do you let nature inspire you? Do you let your nightmares fuel you? Do you create stuff out of whole cloth? Like what's your process for creating these alien creatures? Yeah, I've done a lot of series with different aliens involved. Uh, that's a good question. I think a lot of the times I'll, sometimes I just commission an artist and then see what they come up with, or I'll scroll through ArtStation and just see what's out there and then kind of come up with different versions of that. You know, like I might think something looks cool, but it's not quite right for the book. Or I'll be like, what would a dragon-like character be? And I'm a big fan of mythology. Uh, I went to Waldorf school growing up and that was a big inspiration because they teach all about mythology in those schools. And I've always enjoyed that part of it. So I think I look a lot of the times, you know, scrolling through Wikipedia or something and reminding myself about different gods and myth creatures and then thinking, okay, if that had been an alien, that was here actually and not some weird dragon or some weird something else or some weird god that had a eagle head you know what would be a different version of that you know um stargate was a big inspiration in that sense where they had the egyptian gods that were actually aliens 
And so I've, I'm sure I've done something like that in one of my books. And I've done the, uh, the creatures who have, you know, gold glowing eyes and blue skin that then you find out are the exact same in some video game that you haven't played. And, <laughs> but a lot of it's just taking these artistic ideas. I'm heavily inspired by art and, and, and changing them up. That's how I do names in my books too, kind of. Like I'll look at some way that they say dragon in Swahili or something. That's a bad example because I think it's just dragokis or something. I don't know. Uh, too similar. But, you know, like taking these words or this mythological words and looking them up and seeing how you can kind of change them or mash them together with something else. Uh, yeah. So I wish I was probably more creative to where I would just come up with stuff out of my head. And sometimes that happens. Like I'll just be writing and all of a sudden something will flow out. Uh, but like with the robotic animal things that are in one of my series, you know, that's really not a ripoff of event. Was it uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, the video game series? But, you know, I'm sure it was inspired by that. I bet when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking it at the time. But after the fact, I'm like, oh, that's very similar to that video game that I think is pretty cool. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the inspiration came somewhere from there. Uh, although if you read the book, you'll see they're quite different in how they act and where they actually came from and all that stuff. But there's clearly similarities. Okay. So this interview is winding down. I know you're on a time crunch because you mentioned those kids that, uh, that need dad. Um, but was there anything about Kari the hunt that we didn't ask you wanted to tell us before we move on? Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'll just give that little pitch out there. Like if you read the blurb, you'll see that we're kind of, uh, not over the top silly. It's definitely not a farce or a joke, but, uh, we keep it fun. Like the, the little bat at the end of it line says, if you like Tropic Thunder, Alien Predator, or even Alien versus Predator, which we won't hold against you, you'll love this action-packed sci-fi adventure. And I think that kind of holds the tone for it quite nicely, where it's a good adventure. It's like I said, it's not quite Indiana Jones, but it has that fun vibe to it throughout. So yeah, if you like massive guns, alien creatures and egos and <laughs> all that fun stuff, then you'll probably enjoy it. So is there an audiobook available for this? Is there? No, there is not. Uh, no, that's a good question. I think we've been talking about doing one soon. Actually, almost all of my books have audiobooks. That's a, that's a funny question that uh, that I have to say no to. I got to get on that. So so this is the way that I did this one and why I thought it's fun to talk about because it ties into all that other stuff I've been doing lately with the NFTs and people paying me to write stuff, which has been a total weight off my chest. Just like getting, I, I just recently did another YA kind of sci-fi book for somebody uh, and that was great. Like they just good money up front, like as much, probably if you average all the books that I've written for myself, it's probably around the middle range of what those books have made me back. Uh, and doing that is wonderful. And and similar to this, it's, it's great. Uh, but like in this case, he published the book. So I have a lot less control over all of the, what's going on with it, what's going on with marketing, how ads are done and all that, which is very weird for me as a mostly self-published author. <laughs> yeah. So uh, before we let you go, dear listener, we'll harken back to our, our days of yore. Uh, we'll assume that if you're, uh, if you're readers, then um, you're listening if you're readers. So remember, please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So, uh, so go out there and do the thing. Write a review on Amazon, BookBub, Barnes & Noble, all the places where you buy books. If you can't review it there, start a website and review them review it and uh and help the authors out and it'll keep the series you love going because uh because your feedback is important too so uh normally i'm a lot smoother when i say that i promise justin it didn't didn't come out that way today but you know them's the breaks uh so what are you currently writing uh before we let you go is there anything you can talk about or is this uh the hush hush stuff yeah well there's the mech one that we briefly mentioned and that's called sky warrior it's very neon uh 
whatever Neo Genesis Evangelion. Uh, it's very right. much Evangelion style inspired. It's like a boy. It's kind of like that meets Harry Potter, but no magic. It's all space and mechs and all that fun stuff. Uh, so I'm having a, a good time with that one. And then I have another, like I mentioned, another mech series that's in, inspiring and awesome. I think it's going to be great. Um, and then mostly it's all about these. Uh, well, I will say this: there is a a secret trilogy that I'm writing where each book's going to be minimum 100,000 words. It's going to be very sci-fi. It's going to be very Dune, all this stuff. It's going to be great. Um, when will the first book come out? I'm guessing probably like four or five months from now. And then I'm going to try to come up every three months with the, the sequels to them. So that's going to be great. But that one I have been keeping under wraps. So the first time anybody's heard about it is right here. So stay tuned. All right. We'll have to follow your social medias. Speaking of which, we will link all that to the bottom of the show notes. But can you tell listeners and re, uh, and viewers how they can find you on the interwebs? Sure. Yeah. So, of course, I have my website, which is justinsloanauthor.com. I'm on Twitter at Justin M. Sloan. I have my podcast, if you ever want to come hear me chat about random stuff, uh, which is all writing related. It's called Creative Writing Life. Uh, and I think that about covers it. Okay, and uh, we'll link everything on the uh, show notes, as we mentioned before, dear listener. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Again, SF underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Most of the time, that's Seska you'll be talking to, so be sure to tell her hi and wave. Uh, You can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. We have our website, anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash Blasters dash and dash Blades. We are in the process right now. Doc is looking at getting the uh, domain names of starting a real proper website. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Uh, you can also support us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on or you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-host Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. And if Doc was here, she'd tell you she never quits. So, but uh, thank you for seeing. Oh, oh, we almost forgot because Doc's not here. Uh, What's the verdict on pineapple on pizza? Yay or nay for you? I'm West Coast. Of course. You got to have pineapple on pizza. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I should have asked you sooner. I had to boot you from the show, but but Doc approves of that uh, that shenanigans. Uh, she promised the next time we met in person, she was gonna like shove pineapple pizza down my throat. But I I think I could still take her. I mean, I might be fat and old, but but I'm sure yeah. Doc will be a pushover. Well, we're closer uh, to Hawaii, so we got to pick our alliances properly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go 